The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Hi, comrades. Um, I want to start by uh, saying a word about why. Why this talk? Why are we um, discussing this question? Because the, the answer to the question might be obvious, um, because the existence of white privilege really seems like a self-evident fact. And if socialists oppose oppression, then the question it would seem is how to resist white privilege. After all, for anyone who's paying attention, um, and I don't know how one could avoid this at this point, there are social realities that shape life for people of color in this country in ways that are so markedly different from experiences of white people of any class because they're much, very much directed by racism. That has been true for a long time, but with Trump there is a shift underway, in my opinion, from a dominant colorblind racism that arguably peaked with Obama, uh, in which the dominant institutions promoted a notion that the United States was post-racial, as exemplified by the election of a black president, the election of black politicians on a municipal level, the tiny yet visible ascendancy of a black middle class and even a black elite. These were held up as evidence that by hard work, some black people had overcome the US's historic racism, validating these very institutions of power as indeed democratic, uh, and that the remaining obvious discrepancies in black poverty, joblessness, incarceration, underrepresentation in higher education, etc., 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 were evidence of the failure of black individuals rather than a system designed to oppress us. There has been a shift to a more retrograde model in which the president of the country calls Haiti and African nations shithole countries says that he'd prefer immigration from Scandinavian countries, has appointed a living, breathing relic of the segregation era, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, <laughs> the name says it all, uh, to carry out openly racist hunts for migrants through ICE and dismantle any and all institutional remedies, really the meager institutional remedies uh, that were won by Black Lives Matter to structural racism, including citations to notoriously racist police departments like Baltimore's, um, uh, and more recently, um, a, a whole set of undoing of guidelines around education and what is to be taught regarding racism in this country. Privilege is usually described in what is absent for white people, i.e. white parents don't have to talk with their children with, with, uh, that is, white parents who don't have children of color, uh, about being wary of the police or live in fear of the police themselves. White people don't face discrimination in housing or in jobs, and the list goes on. But this lack of racist uh, features of life, when taken together, produce a different lived reality for white people, which is what I believe people refer to when they say white privilege, generally speaking. I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that black people, in many ways, live in a different country uh, than white people uh, here, uh, with its own legal regimes, economic reality, level of social crisis, uh, etc. Just as I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that undocumented people or families with mixed uh, statuses regarding uh, migration live in a different country uh, from those of us who are U.S. citizens. 
Though it is also the case that a kind of confidence or arrogance that only seems to exist among white people is attributed to white privilege, as is a lack of awareness about the toll of racism and its impacts on people of color, as is an outright active racism on the part of white people. As with uh, Jennifer Schulte, a.k.a. Barbecue Becky. Uh, <laughs> boo, but those memes were really... <laughs> through some dark times. Um, uh, so you all know who she is. I don't have to explain. Yeah, great. Um, or um, Aaron Schlossberg, a Manhattan lawyer and Trump supporter, caught on video threatening to call ICE on Latina employees at a restaurant for speaking Spanish. All of these things uh, are considered examples of white privilege. So why this talk? One reason is that there, is a, there are analytical questions that arise from the application of privilege as a framework. That is, does the umbrella of white privilege explain the range of behaviors of white people in relation to people of color, from passive benefit that white people get uh, from racism just by living in the US, to active use of racism to attack people of color? Uh, there is a question of white privilege in class, and in particular, do working class white people benefit from racism? Or to flesh that out, and I think many people are raising this question in the context of a growing anti-racism and a growing anti-capitalism, if capitalism hurts the entire working class and racism helps uphold capitalism, do working class white people who benefit from the end of capitalism also benefit from one of its central components, racism? Because there's a contradiction there, uh, I think obviously. It is also the case that there is a live debate right now on the socialist left about the relationship between race and class, and more specifically, the relationship of the fight against racism, and in particular, black liberation, and the class struggle. <coughs> but also, as Brian will explain, understanding racism through the lens of white privilege has a history, and actually a recent history. Brian will go into that. Um, a note, this, this talk will focus primarily on the question of the black population and black liberation in the United States context. We recognize that racism targets different groups of people uh, in both shared and unique ways, including Latinx people, Asians, indigenous peoples, people with origins in the Middle East, Central Asia and South Asia, Muslims and migrants. Moreover, we recognize that racism, while a global problem, operates differently in different national contexts. But for analytical reasons, we want to focus on the question of black people in the US, though we will refer to other forms of racism, as I have with uh, uh, ICE um, against uh, migrants, ICE attacks migrants who are, who are black and who are not black. Um, and we also, in the discussion, welcome discussion that goes beyond just the question of black people in this country. With that, I'll switch over to Brian. I hope you all applaud at every transition. <laughs> We're going back and forth a lot um, in the style of the, uh, the group tag team, uh, the writers of Hoop, there it is. Um, <laughs> so um, to start our discussion about what socialists say about white privilege, we want to talk a little bit where the concept came from historically. Uh, despite the fact that sort of nowadays the concept of privilege is used far beyond the socialist left um, in activist circles, universities, corporate trainings, and by charlatans like Tim Wise, the concept comes from the socialist movement. The theory of white skin privilege was an articulation of a strategy of anti-racism. It was an intervention in a specific historical debate about how best to fight racism by the left. Even at the origin 
origin of the theory, though, I think you can see how white skin privilege was an attempt to address a political problem of a class rather than race approach to anti-racism that is often called economic reductionism. Reducing questions of racism to that of class in a way that minimizes the importance of fighting racism specifically and on its own terms. The goal of the theory was to forge a class-wide revolution against capitalism. That's what sort of the originators sort of thought of. And I note this because that content and that goal has been, as Carrie is going to point out, completely stripped away from its now popular applications. Despite its positive intent to work out an anti-racist uh, strategy for socialist revolution, I think that theoretically and in practice it actually has some profound weaknesses and errors that over time have proven that it is not the most effective uh, strategy of anti-racism and has in some ways produced counterproductive strategies that drive pretty far afield from the militant, anti-racist, anti-capitalism that the activists who developed the theories intended. The privileged model of oppression came from a cluster of small Maoist socialist groups that they operated in and were responsible for the dynamiting of the Students for Democratic Society in 1968. The main theoreticians were politically brought up in a small political sect, uh, the awkwardly named Provisional Organizing Committee to Reconstitute the Marxist-Leninist Communist Party, <laughs> the uh, POCRMLCP, I don't think they use that acronym, um, was led by Harry Haywood, uh, who is a leading member of the Communist Party, who was forced out because of his uh, unrepentant support for Joseph Stalin, despite the admission of the USSR in the late 1950s that Stalin did some bad stuff, um, and the attempt by the U.S. party to reduce the cult of uh, a personality around Stalin. Spurned, Haywood would shift his support from Moscow to Beijing and hail the politics of Mao Zedong. This is important context only because it indicates how the, political, the political theory was informed as much by these shifting alliances. Um, that, that's an important context to understand. So the articulation of white skin privilege is widely thought to be coined in a series of essays called White Blind Spot that were written inside SDS by Noel Ignatiev and uh, Ted Allen, who were uh, previous members of Haywood's group uh, with the long name that I mentioned before. Uh, it was written as a polemic against another faction within SDS, the Progressive Labor Party, um, ironically also a pro-Stalin split from the Communist Party USA. The PL had a narrow view around class struggle, that it could be described as reductionist, subordinating fighting racism to class-only demands. So they said we fight racism by fighting for full employment for all. That was one of the main things that they sort of argued. And while it is true that full employment would go a long way in fighting racism, it's also true that firstly that's not enough, and secondly, in order to actually win that full employment for all white and black workers, they'd have to be united. And that means fighting around questions of racism. So PL was worthy of criticism. There, there's a reason why these ideas came about. However, the position put forward in White Blind Spot, and really followed by, by all those beyond that, uh, is, is roughly this, and I quote, The U.S. ruling class has made a deal with the misleaders of American labor and through them with the masses of white workers. The terms of the deal are these. You white workers help us conquer the world and enslave the non-white majority of the Earth's laboring force, and we will repay you. It also suggests that to decrease black unemployment, you'd actually have to increase white unemployment. To, to decrease white un, black unemployment, you have to increase white unemployment. As one example, the privileges that white workers would have to reject. 
Um, it argues that all white workers and black workers have competing material interests, that all white workers share in and benefit from racism due to these differing material interests, and that white workers have similar interests to their own bosses and the white billionaires. Um, before laying out the problems with that, which we're going to sort of get into, I want to underline also how their points of emphasis were different sort of markers than how the theory was considered. To Ignatiev, Allen, and later David Rodiger, this white skin privilege was conceived as, quote, ironic and bitter, with the benefits of the crumbs from master's tables being pitiable and fully worthy of rejection, writes David Rodiger. Counterfeit interests, writes Ignatiev. So there's a stark interest in sort of like these like miserable little crumbs, as opposed to how it's seen now, which is sort of a laundry list of things you put in your invisible backpack while living the good life, which is how it's largely sort of considered. So I'd argue that while they were correct to try to find a way to argue an anti-racist strategy that placed racism as a key element uniting the class in the fight for socialism, and the need to con convince white workers to fight racism, the model of white skin privilege is inadequate. And part of its failing has led to its use moving further and further away from the socialist project of class struggle and anti-capitalist revolution. They acknowledged this problem to a certain degree. They saw part of the drift. In 1976 edition of White Blindspot, less than 10 years after it was written, Ignatiev wrote a disclaimer in the introduction where she said, quote, the repudiation of the white skin privilege does not mean that our major work could, should consist of asking white workers one by one to give up their relatively good neighborhoods, jobs, and schools in favor of blacks and other third world people. The phrase in quotes refers to a policy of struggle of which mass action is the decisive aspect. Like they saw the way the theory was already beginning to slide away from the socialist project. Rodiger, in his most recent book um, in, from 2017, acknowledges that, quote, we may be due for a discussion on whether white privilege now serves well in naming patterns of white advantage inside a system in which most people are miserable. I'll agree with him there, and I'll turn it over to sort of Cree to talk about the way in which this, this drift sort of was taken over by the postmodernists who grabbed the theory of white privilege and ran off with it uh, away from the playing field of class struggle, out of the stadium, and into the academy. <laughs> Alright, the Academy, get ready. <laughs> okay. Um, following the high point of class struggle um, and resistance in the 1960s globally, there was a demobilization of various social movements and forces of resistance in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. While resistance continued, no doubt, throughout these decades, they were ultimate, the, de the decades were ultimately uh, characterized by defeat and retreat. Now that retreat was not just political, uh, that is, in terms of the demobilization of protest movements and ever-narrowing horizons on political demands from offensive revolutionary struggles to defensive uh, struggles against a ruling class assault. Their retreat was also theoretical. Um, and with that, I want to talk a bit about, uh, about postmodernism. The revolutionary movements of the 1960s developed theories that saw each particular part of oppression uh, as tied uh, to a whole system, a totality of oppression that involved capitalism, colonialism, other forms of imperialism, racism, sexism, etc. Uh, there were a number of, of, of theories and kind of variations of socialism and Marxism uh, uh, that framed uh, these different forms of oppression as, as, as systemic and part of a totality. And really, postmodernism questioned that that foundation um, of a totality. Postmodernists rejected the notion that we can, um, can or even should 
approach uh, the experiences of people in society as aspects of one larger totality. Now, on one hand, there were some important contributions that post, there have been some important contributions that postmodern theorists have made to conversations and resistance struggles regarding oppression by calling attention to otherwise overlooked, oppressed, and marginalized groups of people. In particular, there are contributions in the field of queer theory uh, that have been very important in challenging notions of gender, sexuality, and power. But as a framework, I do think that postmodernism departs too far from a structural analysis of oppression. Um, I want to talk in particular about the, um, the Argentine philosopher Ernesto Laclau and the Belgian philosopher Chantal Mouffe, themselves veteran socialists of uh, the movements of the 1960s, um, who wrote one of the most influential works of postmodernism in 1985, Hege Hegemony and Socialist Strategy. Um, and <laughs> um, so I want to, um, so I, just, I, I, I want to, to read a couple of quotes that get at um, what I'm talking about when I, when I say really um, challenging the notion of a totality and arguing against uh, uh, the kind of classical Marxist sense of a class struggle. What is now in crisis, this is from the introduction of the book, uh, what is now in crisis is a whole conception of socialism which rests on the ontological centrality of the working class, that, that is in crisis, upon the role of revolution with a capital R as the founding moment in the transition from one type of society to another, and upon the illusory prospect of a perfectly unitary and homogeneous collective that will render pointless the moment of politics. Um, which I don't think is an accurate description of a revolution, um, but, but that, is, that is the notion of a working class itself as an analytical category, the notion of revolution uh, as the kind of object of struggle, those things uh, are in crisis and really they argue are to be uh, abandoned. Um, and they continue, at this point we should state quite plainly that we are now situated in, the po in a post-Marxist terrain. It is no longer possible to maintain the conception of subjectivity and classes elaborated by Marxism, not its vision of the historical course of capitalist development, nor, of course, the conception of communism as a transparent society from which antagonisms have disappeared." End quote. Now, to be clear, the Marxist argument is not that, uh, or our Marxist argument, is not that uh, social antagonisms will simply disappear ever after revolution. But their point here is that, that, that the, the very notion of a revolution itself should really be uh, rethought in question and ultimately, I, I think, projected. Um, Laclau writes in uh, his, his book on populist reason, um, he rejects the notion of, of uh, mass struggle coming together on the basis of a shared objective interest, arguing, quote, any populist unification takes place on a radically heterogeneous social terrain. Now that was one phase of, um, that postmodern turn was one phase of a retreat from the Marxist project that laid the basis for a different way of conceiving of race, which really helped, uh, helping to mutate um, white privilege from the conception that socialists uh, in the 1960s ha had of it, the way that Brian was discussing. Another very important phase came with the writing of a landmark piece by Peggy McIntosh, a women's studies uh, scholar at Wellesley College, whose incredibly influential article from 1988 is called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, um, which you may have, you very likely have read it at a workshop on privilege or uh, in, in like an introduction to oppression course at a university. Now, in the uh, article, she really describes a personal journey uh, where, through reflection, she's come to commit to a constant interrogation of her everyday life as a white person. Now, I'll, I'll read uh, a quote. I, I think whites are carefully taught not to recognize white privilege, as males are taught not to recognize male privilege. So I have begun, in an untutored way, to ask what it is like to have white privilege. 
I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to be terrain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, codebooks, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks." End quote. She acknowledges in the article institutional power and racism, but in terms of struggle, the sole subject of the piece is the individual, and the sole act is self-reflection. Now, to be clear, I think it's necessary, a necessary thing for those of us who do not directly experience an oppression to develop a self-awareness regarding ourselves um, and our positions in the society vis-a-vis -vis structural oppression and others in society who do experience those uh, oppressions directly. But if, the, if that is the primary engagement with oppression, it is ultimately a self-centered, largely, and I don't mean that pejoratively, it, it's, I just think that's an accurate description, um, a self-centered and largely mental exercise that leaves the system intact. Macintosh concludes, uh, quote, although, this, is the, this is the actual conclusion of the, of the piece, although systemic change may take decades, there are pressing questions for me and I imagine for some others like me if we raise our daily consciousness on the prerequisites of being light-skinned. What will we do with such knowledge? As we know from watching men, it is an open question whether we will choose to use unearned advantage or whether we will use any of our arbitrarily awarded power to reconstruct power systems on a broader base." End quote. Now this, uh, from the starting point that Brian uh, laid out, really comes full circle to liberalism. Uh, that is, a fun, fun, that the notion that we actually do live in what is fundamentally a democracy and white people have access to it. Um, and so while the primary task is self-reflection, the political project she puts forward is using that access to include those marginalized from power because of racism into power. Uh, that is, the systemic change that she mentions uh, is, involves uh, bringing people of color higher into the hierarchies of power. Now there are a couple of problems here. The first is the assumption that the institutions that govern the society we live in are actually democratic. They are not. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> the second is that um, white people have access to this democracy. This is complicated because if one looks at the boardrooms, legislatures, management meetings, editorial boards, etc., one will no doubt find a predominance of white people and frankly white men. But one would be hard-pressed to prove that all white people have equal access to those institutions of power. As a blunt example, let's look at the United States Senate. 91 of the 100 senators are white, and 79 out of 100 are male. But that doesn't mean that all white people have equal access to the U.S. Senate. The composition of the U.S. Senate is, indeed, an expression of a racist society. But looking at the blindingly white character of the Senate, which is blinding, uh, <laughs> That alone can leave invisible the various other means by which people become senators besides race. The most obvious being class, which includes a whole set of rules, formal and informal, about wealth, access to wealth, attendance at particular universities, membership to literal clubs, support from the structures of the Democratic and Republican parties, various corporations, etc. The other thing about the political project of self-reflection as politics, though, which is what I think uh, Peggy McIntosh is putting forward, is that when combined with a postmodern framework that sees society not as organized in a social groups like classes, but to, to use um, uh, LaClau's um, term, radically heterogeneous, um, and atomizing the individuals um, is that 
interrogating oppression that is investigating what it means to, to have an identity, to be a black gay woman, for example, at the intersection of those identities, instead of that being a relevatory and liberating uh, approach to analysis, can become analytically disarming, in my uh, opinion. Um, instead of seeing overlapping or intersecting identities as locating one in a social group, which I think is possible with an intersectional Marxist feminist approach, one locates oneself as more privileged than some and less privileged than others. Um, and perhaps um, some of you in the room have done exercises uh, where you all line up with a group of people and if you're white you take a step forward and if you're a man you take a step forward and if you're black you take a step backward. If you have X amount uh, of money in your bank account you take a step backward or forward, um, etc. Now, while the intention of the exercise is to develop self-awareness, what emerges is a gradation of privilege that literally everybody in the world is on. Uh, you know, all of us in the room and Donald Trump, you know, are on the same spectrum. He's like a trillion steps ahead, um, but still on the same spectrum. Um, and then there are always people behind us because you're always more privileged than somebody and always less privileged than somebody else um, without a reckoning of one's relationship to deeper power structures. keeping up the clapping. Um, so um, while we have described the dramatic shift away from socialist politics to liberalism and sort of individual solutions to changing the bad ideas that the theory of white privilege sort of led to, we want to take a moment to take a spin in the DeLorean um, to look at other approaches to anti-racist strategy and politics different from white privilege that I think other socialists have, tried, have used to tackle how to fight racism throughout the years. I think looking back at our history as socialists fighting racism, there are of course are a lot of negative lessons, but I also think there's some tremendously positive ones. And I also want to just flow through some stuff to see that there's other ways that it has been done and that it could be done. Um, Marx was very interested in the question of slavery and racism. His writings on prejudice against Irish workers by British workers was used as the basis for many approaches for fighting racism, including uh, those who, who came up with white skin privilege theory. Um, his understanding that the quote, real secret of maintaining the power of the British ruling class being the artificial hatred created by the rulers to pit British against Irish. Uh, in Capital, he describes how chattel slavery was the foundation that allowed for the creation of wage slavery. He calls it the pedestal that it sits upon. As he states in the Poverty Philosophy, uh, direct slavery is just as much the pivot of bourgeois industry as machinery, credits, etc. Without slavery, you had no cotton. Without cotton, you had no modern industry. He was linking those two quite, quite intimately. This approach was apparent in the revolutionary approach put forward by Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who argued that revolutionaries had to win the working class to being the tribune of the oppressed and to tirelessly fight against oppression regardless of the class of the individual who was facing the oppression. For Lenin in his work on national self-determination, socialist revolution was impossible without quote, mass struggle by all and sundry of the oppressed and discontented masses. Impossible, he says. These politics helped guide the only successful workers' revolution in Russia in 1917. In this country, socialists like Eugene Debs would argue that socialism without black equality would be, quote, false to its historic mission, violate the principles of socialism, deny its philosophy, and repudiate its own teachings. 
The birth of the American Communist Party took these elements of Mar Marxism and the Bolshevik revolutionary approach to fighting racism and were able to also build a mass party of whites and black revolutionaries on the basis that the whole class had to fight racism to advance together. They placed supporting the fight against anti-black racism as, quote, the special duty of every communist and armed white comrades to, quote, boldly jump at the throat of racism. They built an organization that played a leading role in the fight against anti-black racism in the 20s and the 30s and, and the 40s uh, for around housing and tenants' rights in northern cities, unemployed councils, tenant farmer unions in Alabama, and fighting against police brutality and against lynching, like the famous Scottsboro Boys case. They would be leading fighters in the formation of the CIO and the birth of interracial unionism, which was key in improving the quality of life of workers in this country, both black and white. It's an amazing history, and it really, I think, cuts against some of what the latter proponents of white privilege would consider impossible. For example, and there's, there's long histories of this, there's books in the Haymarket Room, know it, but in 1919, horrible racist pogroms against black people occurred in many northern cities. In Chicago, it was especially bad, but there was a union that was organized by the Communist Trade Union Education League called the Stockyard Labor Council. Decades before the CIO, there was an interracial union that actually was built in opposition to a, uh, a boss's all-black union. So think about sort of pulling that part well. Uh, but they voted to expel any affiliate uh, who wouldn't uh, accept black workers. And then during the riots in Chicago, when police and white mobs were lynching black people in the street, 30,000 white and 4,000 black workers voted to go on strike to kick the police out of the stockyards and for the black workers to bring their families into the stockyards to be protected against the riot. That's a different vision of how we sort of want a fight against so through projecting and injecting the fight against anti-black racism as central in every fight, the communists were able to build an organization of 80,000 members with 10,000 of them being black, which means that the American Communist Party had more black revolutionaries than the later Black Panthers would. It's interesting to sort of think about. And they built an organization also that contained mass numbers of white people who put anti-racism as front and center in the 20s and 30s when Jim Crow was a reality and lynching was a plague. They did this with a different strategy than white privilege. They still had problems in the party, of course. All the party literature talks about problems of white chauvinism in the party, but they actively took to root it out. And it's important to note that it wasn't white chauvinism but the politics of Stalinism that would later result in its destruction. But that's another talk for another day. So our history as socialists, I think, has many attempts of our attempting to work out the theory and strategy of race, class, and anti-racism, and there's much to learn. But I think sort of shifting now to the contemporary debates are really sort of important. So um, I think that this is actually um, an exciting time to be talking about race and class, though. It's always, it's always a good time to talk about black <laughs> privilege, let's be honest. Um, but, but at the moment, right now, actually, there are um, very much live debates on the socialist left about race and class. Uh, and there's a number um, uh, regarding the understanding of, of race and class. Um, and a few of them address the question of privilege, i.e. the relation or position of white workers relative to black workers and other workers of color. Um, so there's a few, um, can't do justice to all of the debates, but I want to kind of uh, address a, a few. So one, I would argue, one tendency on the left is a total dismissiveness of entertaining white privilege or calling attention to inequality along racial lines within the working class. 
uh, which I disagree with. Um, and uh, I want to cite um, as an example a, a piece written um, uh, for Jacobin uh, by Connor Kilpatrick called Why the Right Loves Privileged Politics. And he points out that right -wing attacks, the right-wing attacks union workers as privileged members of the working class to be resented by non-union workers. Um, quote, the right deploys privileged politics to avoid class politics, obscuring just where the real wealth, power, and yes, privilege lies in our society. Clearly, there's something about this tactic that's conducive to the conservative mission. They've been using it for decades now. Obviously, they have reason to believe it's working in their interests. So why exactly do we think it's working in ours? End quote. But while considering a right-wing version of the politics of privilege, Kilpatrick doesn't engage at all uh, with progressives or people on the left who are trying to grapple with inequality in society from a critical perspective. Rather, he points to the very fact that there is a right-wing version of privilege politics as evidence that should negate any consideration of inequality through the lens of privilege from the left, which again, I disagree with. Um, a second tendency is something that Brian talked about, which is class reductionism or economic reductionism. Um, and that is something that exists today, and I think actually it's most uh, famous proponent. Um, the, the, I should say, um, this, this guy has done some good things, but um, I think Bernie Sanders um, has actually articulated a kind of class reductionist uh, position, in particular when he was running for president. And he was asked um, directly, do you support reparations for black people? And I want to read uh, his response. No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> he said more than that. Um, I, I wanted to, to, I don't know, maybe this is, uh, I support reparations for black people, so I just want to, and you should too. All right. Um, so that's the, the, preface, the preface. Okay, Bernie Sanders. No, I don't think so. First of all, its likelihood of getting through Congress is nil. Second of all, I think it would be re very divisive. The real issue is when, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, the, the real issue is when we look at the poverty rate among the African-American community, when we look at high unemployment rate within the African-American community, we have a lot of work to do. So I think what we should be talking about is making massive investments in rebuilding our cities and creating millions of decent paying jobs and making public colleges and universities tuition free, basically targeting our federal resources to the areas where it is needed the most and where it is needed the most is, the, is in impoverished communities, often African-American and Latino." Uh, end quote. Now, the kind of program that he uh, lays out is one that I am adamantly for. Um, I imagine we are all for, but there are some problems here. Um, and the big one is that, is that the, the, the problem is that racism manifests in all kinds of ways that are not just economic. Uh, housing discrimination, the segregated geographies of our cities, uh, and the corresponding segregation in services uh, to uh, those cities, segregated schools uh, and underfunded schools for black children, and of course the wildly different reality of black people vis-a-vis -vis the criminal justice system, these are not questions of wages. Moreover, we actually reject the notion that calling special attention to racism or any other special form of oppression is divisive. <laughs> On the contrary, the notion of ignoring racism in the name of unity, quote unquote unity, 
will produce a false unity uh, in which chauvinisms that white people and men and others who, do, who grow up not facing particular forms of racism directly will undermine resistance and that resistance will be prone to schemes by those in power to divide us along lines of oppression which after all is the primary purpose of those oppressions. It's not sufficient in the face of the state caging migrants to say that we can all get behind higher wages, something that Sanders, to his credit, has come around to, um, whereas initially dismissing the question of abolishing ICS has since uh, uh, said something better, obviously pushed by the mass mobilizations of people that took place last weekend. We believe in a, cla a, re a real class unity, uh, one that is capable of posing a challenge to capitalism, and it will have to be an anti-racist unity, not just non-racist, but actively combating racism. That is, we want to win working class white people to fighting for reparations for black people. Uh, the last um, kind of uh, question or, or um, aspect of this debate that I want to bring up is uh, what I think is uh, a better version than the class reductionism, um, one, one that's better than what, what, San what I was just talking about with Sanders, but one that I think uh, really actually conflates the question of race and class. And for that, I want to quote um, from a, a comrade named R.L. Stevens, um, who's another Marxist writer on race and class, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And this is from... Um, a, uh, an article that he wrote called No More Walter Scotts in Jacobin, um, which is about the black man who was murdered in 2015 in South Carolina after uh, a car chase. He was chased by a, a cop, um, and then he got out and ran on foot from the police because he, had, because he had a warrant out for his arrest for unpaid child support. Now, in his article, Stevens conflates race and class, in my opinion. He argues racism is class politics in motion. This dynamic is fundamentally practical. Um, that is, he argues that racism uh, arises from a practical thing, which is class exploitation. He continues, the nagging mystery remains. Why did Walter Scott run, run from the cop? Like race itself, Walter was practical. He owed over $18,000 in child support, and a bench warrant for his arrest was issued in 2013. He was poor. He was desperate to avoid what amounted to a debtor's prison. He ran, he died. Each stride, ginger and pained with the ravages of age, was the practicality of class politics in motion. The racism that killed Walter Scott, this is uh, Stevens' conclusion, uh, was, was a manifestation of a class-based assault on the masses, both black and white. Of course, there's an issue of proportion. Black people are more likely to be poor, to be victims of violent crime, to be killed by police. However, a disproportionate effect does not neutralize the broad class-based nature of the overall attack on the public sector that shaped the conditions leading to Scott's murder." End quote. Um, okay, but I want to interrogate this because the fact is that white people in this country are incarcerated at a rate of 450 to, uh, for every 100,000 people, which is a lot high relative to other uh, places in the world. But black people, so white people 450 to 100,000, black people are incarcerated at a rate of 2,300 per 100,000 in a much smaller population. That's not a question of proportion. That constitutes a qualitatively different social reality. As the New York Times reported in 2015, at birth and throughout childhood, there are roughly equal numbers of black boys and black girls in society. But as we age, there's a thinning out of black males, such that by the age uh, range of 25 to 59, what demographers call the prime age years, 
for every 100 black women who are not in jail, there are only 83 uh, black men. And the remainder are missing. Uh, this compares to, for every 100 female adults, there are 99 male adults. In other words, the phenomenon basically doesn't uh, exist in the same way. Most of what the New York Times calls the missing black men are absent due to either incarceration or early death. By this measure, the number of missing black men at the moment nationwide is larger than the entire black male population of New York City. Or, uh, understood another way, larger than the black male populations of Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Detroit, Houston, Washington, and Boston combined. That is not a question of proportion. That is a different social reality. Uh, that conflating race and class does not, uh, does not reckon with. Now, um, to respond to this, I want to quote from um, an article uh, called Against Reductionism. It's written um, by one of our um, comrades in Australia, the, the Australian publication Marxist Left Review. This is from a comrade named Sarah Garnham. And it's a bit dense, but I want to um, quote, go through it because I think it's, it's really um, excellent and uh, clarifying. She writes, the objective for Marxists is not to separate or rank oppression in class, but to understand the way that the two are bound together, not in a static relationship of subordination and domination, but as part of a unitary and contradictory whole. The Marxist method of abstraction is fundamental to understanding this unitary whole, but the Marxist method also crucially involves an integration of both abstractions and specifics. Now, she means that race and class are distinct, but also part of a whole totality. She continues, quote, this totality, however, cannot be seen as undifferentiated. There are parts that are foundational, uh, pervasive, and core in a way that other parts are not. The production process is foundational because it is the mechanism through which the central drive of the capitalist system, the accumulation of capital, is fulfilled, and because it is the base of the social relations that pervert society, per per pervade society uh, as a whole. From this, we can understand, for example, that, that though it was necessary for capitalism to come onto this earth, uh, quote, dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt, the, the exact source of the blood and dirt was not predetermined. Now here, that, that the, um, the notion that capital comes to earth dripping uh, from every pore with blood and dirt um, is a quote from Karl Marx. No, I do not want a Microsoft auto update. <laughs> Um, this is a part of Capital um, where um, Marx is describing the process known as primitive accumulation that is the foundation of capitalism and Marx described this as an incredibly violent process chiefly involving a few components one, the dispossession of peasants in Europe driving them off of their lands and ultimately forcing them into what would become the industrial proletariat Two, the dispossession of the indigenous population of the Americas, which Marx writes in detail about, uh, and the level of naked violence that that, that that has involved. And three, the mass kidnapping of Africans and the making of an enslaved black population. This history was not predetermined, uh, is what, is what uh, Sarah Garnham is arguing. Um, the classes of people who became capitalists did not start out by saying, we're going to enslave Africans and create a global black slave population, but they did that. Garnon continues, once entrenched, however, specific forms of oppression, structures, and ideologies form part of the unitary whole. 
Not only are they then shaped by the impulses and interests of the system of which they are part, but also they themselves can shape the contours of that system. Most importantly, they shape the nature and particulars of class struggle." End quote. In other words, capitalism has created a particular form of class society. It has also created, distinctly but relatedly, racism. And while capitalism has produced and shaped racism, racism also shapes capitalism. And racism shapes class struggle. So, to sum up, um, Thus far, we've talked about how the concept of white privilege as a model for understanding and fighting oppression, uh, where it came from, how the concept has moved away from its socialist origin, and how it is not the only theory that's been used by the left, um, and how it is not needed to intervene in current debates against class reductionism. So I want to sort of close by talking a little bit more about its well-intentioned limitations, and also put forward what we think is a better way for understanding how to fight racism. The problem with the white privilege conception is that it doesn't capture the dynamism of reality. I think sort of Korea laid this out quite well. However, it sticks around as an idea because of one true element of that dynamic that exists under capitalism, and that's how fucking racist the society is. Like, that sticks around. People grab onto the theory of white privilege in many cases because they're aware of how profoundly unequal this society is, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's great that white people have an understanding of that, that oppression is a lived reality for many people that they still have to deal with in a society that on a level that's criminal. That's a good thing. Um, part of this runs counter to the liberal myth that we live in a colorblind society or that the goal for well-meaning white people is simply to not see race. Racism is ideology, but it's an ideology that is reproduced materially and felt materially to the point where it becomes a different social reality, as Cree was laying out. It's not just bad ideas that we sort of contend with by talking to our friends, but racism is the 2.4 million black people in prison. Racism is the unbridled police harassment and the constant threat of being murdered by a cop for the crime of driving, walking, running, breathing, being black in this society. Racism is the fact that current studies suggest that median wealth of black America will dropped to zero by 2053. Zero, the median wealth of black America. Racism is black women dying in childbirth at three times that of, rate of whites, independent of, of, of class, which is, that's really important to note. Racism is the unemployment rate that is close to 25% uh, in parts of Chicago, and with that, they've continued to close you know, multiple schools. They closed 50 schools just years ago. At the same time, they find $96 million for a spend for a new cop academy. Racism is the fact that Flint still does not have clean water. So we don't want people to not see race. That's not the goal. We want everyone to see the racism that is and has been a central ingredient in society from the very beginning. It's not just bad ideas, and it's not just a question of proportion. It's a social reality that we want people to come to a grasp with. And so when people talk about white privilege that we encounter, they're often talking about racism. We want to start there. But I think that white privilege is not enough. It's not going to actually win white people and black people together and everybody fighting to smash racism. Why? So I want to start with W.B. Du Bois. Folks love Du Bois. Um, there's a passage in his phenomenal, that's not why I'm picking him. It's like someone, who's everybody going to like? W.B. Du Bois. Um, 
though it's true, right? There, there's a passage in his phenomenal work, Black Reconstruction, that is often quoted by proponents of white skin privilege. That everyone sort of quotes it. He says, and he's writing specifically about the situation in the American South um, after the war against the slaveholders' rebellion, um, it, also the Civil War. Um, the quote goes, it must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they receive a low wage, uh, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. Then he goes on to uh, give many examples of this. You know, that white people could go to public schools, they could go to parks and access those things, that uh, the, the press talks about how they're great and sort of says bad things about sort of black people and gives many examples of this. All these are true things, of course. However, the passage before that is not often quoted uh, by these thinkers. In the passage before that, he says um, about how it's difficult to create interracial solidarity in the South after the Civil War. He says this was, quote, because the theory of race was supplanted by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method, which drove such a wedge between the white and black workers that there are probably not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical, identical interests who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently and who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. So he begins by, he says both that racist ideology, and especially anti-black racism, is the wedge that divided workers in the South. It is the, the most important thing that divided that. And that despite this, that they, quote, have practically identical interests. This is the dynamic reality of the intersection of class and race that I think flies against the primary thesis of white skin privilege, and that is that white workers, as a category, have a material interest in the maintenance of racism. Why? I think, firstly, though black workers earn far less unemployment is far, unemployment is far higher than for white workers, the idea that white workers earn more because black workers earn less has no basis. I think even before we talk about why, it's important to note that that same sort of argument is nearly synonymous with the stuff you hear on Fox News that says, you know, they, the terrifying non-white other, are coming for your jobs. And this is the kind of racist scapegoating that is the slogan of white nationalism. So I think sort of, we should sort of be careful about that. That should give us pause. But as far as wages go, it's actually the case that in places um, where white earners are made more in comparison with other whites are places in which the gap between white and black uh, were, were less. Um, so if bosses are able to underbid with cheap black labor, it drives down the wages overall. So materially, there actually is an, is an interest just on that one basis. Solidarity through unions that can ensure equal pay are the main bulwark against this, as opposed to people stepping back and giving up the wages that they have. I think that this is the prime example of Frederick Douglass's explanation of racism as dividing both to conquer each. You see that in this, this issue uh, very clearly. Secondly, while it's demonstrably the case that in many, many ways, whites are better off than black folks, that's true. I think, however, we should interrogate that phrase a little bit more. Obviously, if no material advantages were present, if that didn't exist, then the ideological force of racism would have less of a hold. It would be less effective at dividing white and black workers. That's why it's not just ideology. However, it's also the case that better off is still a situation where wages have been stagnant for decades. The rate 
rate of poverty is unchanged since 2008. People having a hard time getting by and the white working class as well is facing a decline of living standards. A study released yesterday by the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development found that the U.S. behind Spain and Greece have more households below the median income line than any other developed country. So we're not doing so well. It's actually the case that non-college educated whites life expectancy is falling, which is a situation that has no historical parallel in modern capitalism. And I think if folks went to Nicole Colson's talk about the opioid crisis, you're going to see how that is ravaging white America, though we should note how racism is obscuring the blackness of that too. Both of those things are true. Um, so in this, you know, there's also the case that we're all going to die because of global warming. So in that situation... Unless we have a revolution. Thank you, thank you. This so-called privileged position, I think, is rapidly eroding. And I think becomes more and more incomprehensible to me how to go to a working class person and tell them what it is that they're supposed to give up or repudiate when they're swallowed in debt, working more jobs, have shitty or no health care, etc., etc., etc. I don't see how it has an explanatory power that can win people into action. So we can say that life is miserable and also say that the difference between white and black and how they experience is oppression is more than just that of proportion, as Carice had mentioned. We can understand that this is not only not denying or minimizing differences, but that, as some reductionists say, but we actually want to highlight racist discrepancies that exist, while seeing that expanding the scale of better off, if you take this thing about better off, and you expand it more, while the divide is real and outrageous between white worker and black worker, if you look at it in comparison with the conditions of the multi-billionaires, the ruling class, whether white or black, they're living in a different planet. Like the sort of the, the social reality of being one of these vampire parasites is like being a different planet in the conditions of sort of working people, even with the discrepancies between white and black worker. In the most concrete terms, obviously, um, if I go to a job and I'm competing with someone, I have an advantage over someone who happens to be black or brown. Like, that's true. If I get pulled over by a cop, I have a much better chance of not being arrested, harassed, or murdered. But it's also the case that I am better off if I don't have to compete with someone for a job so they don't starve. I'm better off without the cops. White people will be better off without racism because white people will be better off without capitalism. And as Malcolm X says, you can't have capitalism without racism. So, in summary, white privilege means different things to different people. There's an anti-Marxist form that we reject. There's also some people who use it today to describe the inequality within the working class. And that understanding is essential for the struggle of black liberation. However, I think as we've laid out, I think the concept is fraught. I think it has severe limitations for the reasons that we've said. And that there are better ways to both describe and turn descriptions. Don't just talk about the world, but turn that description into revolutionary strategy. I think that's through solidarity. And it's on the base of solidarity, of shared struggle that isn't identical. Like we don't want to sort of flatten the differences, but still see the sort of the common project that I think is the best standing to winning white people to fight against racism. I think that's the goal that, that, that we have. Now, obviously, I think the character of that fight and how we organize this has to reflect that people are differently affected by different types of oppression. It would be stupid and idiotic to not consider that. We must have the assumption of self-emancipation and that fights against oppression must obviously center those folks who fight that oppression. All that's unquestionably the case. Fighting racism is not a position of sympathy. 
We don't want unity for unity's sake, but unity forged through us insisting that anti-racist struggle is a central part of all of our struggles. We need to argue that fighting racism is not divisive to the class struggle, but is decisive for the class struggle. In this context, in this context, solidarity is not an option, but it's crucial for workers of the whole rainbow's ability to resist the constant degradation of living standards. Solidarity is not only needed, but desperately necessary if we want to actually bring the system to its knees. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.